As we prepare to dive into Esther 2 and the next few scenes of the story, and um, understanding it as a, a wonderfully written story as part of what we're doing. Um, one of the things that I'd like to do for, for really the rest of our series on Esther, I'm going to ask one of our, our attenders to come up and read the chapter that we're about to study. So that way we can hear the story and hear what's going on. So open your Bibles to Esther chapter 2. If you don't have one, there's a black one right under a seat around you. We, can, we invite you to follow along or you can open your app. The event should be up on version if you're following that. But I'd like to invite Mary Diaz up to, to read Esther chapter 2 for us. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus was abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be brought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all of the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. And this pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shemai, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives carried away with Jeconiah, the king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is, Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in the custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to a best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus uh, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women. When the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shahagaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. 
When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihai, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter, to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, had, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tibeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bichthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged at the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. The characters are introduced. Mordecai and Esther come on the scene. The pieces are being arranged for the main part of the story. The prologue finishes with chapter 2. And we've seen this prologue in chapter 1 and chapter 2 really comes in three scenes. And last week we saw scene number 1 where King Ahasuerus was, was um, unhappy with Vashti. I guess we could say unhappy. Angry and, and frustrated that she didn't fulfill his every whim. And so she's deposed and taken away. And now today we're going to see really scenes two and three of the prologue where Esther becomes queen and Mordecai saves the king's life. All of these are God setting up what is happening. Now, some people view this chapter as an amazing chapter of a fairy tale for Esther. That life is grand, the girl that became queen, this is a wonderful thing. I think this morning we're to learn from the text that that is not at all how we should read this text. I would argue that that is not at all what she was feeling. This was not happy days for her. In fact, these were probably some of the most difficult circumstances of her life. And I think when we start to understand the story through that lens, and we see her response, and we see God's hand in the middle of that, then we understand, I think, some of the lessons that the Holy Spirit has for us out of this chapter. See, there are times that God seems silent. There are times that we don't understand what he's doing. But in reality, his fingerprints are all over it. Both for Esther, as we'll see here, but for us today. And and I know we, we are coming from all kinds of weeks. Some of you have had fantastic weeks. Some of you have had horrible weeks. But no matter what, the same God is ruling today. The same God is sovereign. And his fingerprints are all over your week this last week, no matter what. And that's what we want to come and we re- remember this morning. 
This week, my family and I were watching a movie, and sometimes we watch family movies together, and, and this one was the uplifting movie, Alexander and the Horrible, Terrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. And it's actually pretty funny, and, and the movie ends well, and it's based on, well, by title only. There's nothing in the story that matches the story. It's based on one of my favorite kids' stories. And um, let me just read a little bit to you out of this um, wonderful book of theology. I went to sleep with gum in my mouth, and now there's gum in my hair. And when I got out of bed this morning, I tripped on the skateboard, and by mistake, I dropped my sweater in the sink while the water was running. And I could tell it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. At breakfast, Anthony found a Corvette Stingray kit in his breakfast cereal box, and Nick found a junior undercover agent code ring in his breakfast cereal box. But in my breakfast cereal box... All I found was breakfast cereal. I think I'll move to Australia. Skipping ahead to, to a little bit more. There were lima beans for dinner, and I hate limas. There was kissing on TV, and I hate kissing. My bath was too hot. I got soap in my eyes. My marble went down the drain, and I had to wear my railroad train pajamas. I hate my railroad train pajamas. When I went to bed, Nick took back the pillow he said I could keep, and the Mickey Mouse nightlight burned out, and I bit my tongue. The cat wants to sleep with Anthony, not with me. It has been a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. My mom says some days are like that, even in Australia. I love that book, and as I read it again, I'm not sure why I love that book. (laughs) Maybe just the snarkiness of it a little bit. But it it captures what we feel sometimes. And and, and anyone here ever had a horrible day? Yeah, yeah, you have. (laughs) And, And we can feel like everything's against us, and everything's going wrong, and there's always some light at the end of the tunnel, or grass is greener somewhere else. For him, it was in Australia. And his mom reminded him, no, 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 there's bad days everywhere, even in Australia. And, and, and I, I see that and I can relate with that as we all can, but there's answers that aren't here. And, and the answer for us isn't moving to Australia. It isn't somehow just working up the energy to go to sleep and forget about today. The answer we find in Esther too is that God is using even those difficult circumstances. Even the circumstances we don't understand why they're part of our life, God is using that for His glory and our good. And that is a theme that we've seen throughout Scripture as we've gone through Scripture. And it's the theme that we're going to see in Esther chapter 2. See, if I had to summarize this chapter, as God sovereignly sets His people in place in spite of and through difficult events, even before the need is known, even before. And so God can see ahead and God can know what needs to happen and He is divinely orchestrating the events of this world and the events of our lives to accomplish His purposes. Maybe those purposes aren't today. Maybe those purposes are 10 years down the road or 20 years down the road. Growing up, I played a lot of chess and I don't know if you you played chess, but in, in chess, one of the goals is to think far enough ahead where you're setting up traps for the other person that they don't even know are there yet. And you're setting up your pieces for something that's going to happen later in the game. And the person that can do that the best is the person that wins the game, that accomplishes their plan. And what Esther reminds us, and especially the prologue here, where this is happening way before the threat, 
this reminds us that God is playing chess and we're not even playing checkers. We may be our tic-tac-toe or maybe can I get the little dot in the circle? There's just no, no comparison between what God is seeing and what God is doing. And my goal today is we come out of today with, with a deeper trust in God and a deeper understanding of his work and, and just, just resting in that and reveling in that. We heard from the story some of the things that were happening and we're going to see, like I said, two scenes, Esther becoming queen and then, um, Mordecai uncovering a plot and saving the king and, and we'll look and we'll just sort of step through the story and then look at some applications of that story. And, and so the first part of scene, scene two here of Esther becoming queen is verses one through four. And God is using the self-serving, self-indulgent decision of the king to initiate events that would make Esther queen. Let me repeat that. God is using the self-serving, self-indulgent decision of the king. There's nothing good about his decisions to initiate events that would make Esther queen. And so God can even use a pagan king. He can even use sinful actions. He doesn't cause them, but his sovereignty can use them. And, and as we saw last week in, in chapter 1 with Queen Vashti being deposed, the big picture there was even when God is silent, he is working, and that God sometimes uses evil for his purposes there. He is sovereign, not King Ahasuerus. It was hard last week, too, to see Vashti's moral actions and the stand she took really appear to punish her and appear to make her life work. But it was part of a bigger plan of what God is doing. So here in verses 1 through 4, God again is using this self-serving, self-indulgent king to accomplish his plan. And so we read in verse 1, after these things, and, and we don't know how long that is, but the, the, the hangover wore off from the decision with Vashti. And, and we know that Esther becomes queen about four years after the situation with Vashti. So we have some time here. And from history, we know that after the situation with Vashti and after that feast, that King Ahasuerus took his army to war. The, the largest army on the planet at the time, he took them to war to, to go confront Greece, to go take over Greece and to take out Greece. And they got their tails whooped. And they, they, they were defeated. Their army was defeated. Their navy was defeated. It shouldn't have happened. But the king went to do all this and, and he now has suffered the greatest military defeat of his life. And he comes back with his tail between his legs. And all that is happening between chapter one and chapter two. And, and we think that he's, he's coming back and, and this is a little bit of just imagination. But he's coming back from this defeat and now he's reflecting that my companion, Vashti, who was queen, so his favorite, the one that he was closest to, she's gone. I can't even go to her for companionship at this time. I can't even get comfort from her. And the way that edicts work or decrees worked in Persia is once a king made a decree, it could not be undone. He couldn't say, oops, I'm going to take that back. No, once it was a decree, it was done. That's going to play later in the story. And so he's coming back. Vashti's gone. He can't do anything about it. And so we read, after these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. And the tone of all that language is, uh-oh. Oh, Oh, man, I blew it. Now that I'm sober, I can see that. But uh, what have I done And there's some regrets there, probably. 
Now the people around, and in verse 2, then the king's young men who attended him, these are quite possibly the same young men who were his wise counsel that said, let's get rid of Vashti. Now picture what they're thinking. King's upset. Things don't go well when king's upset. He's upset that Vashti's gone. We're the ones that encouraged him to get rid of Vashti. Do do you see the progression there? I I think there's a little bit of self-protection here. Like, uh uh-oh, the king's going to take this. He's in a foul mood. He's going to take this out on us because really it's our fault. It wasn't even his decree. And, And the wording there is what had been decreed against her. It wasn't what he decreed. It was this idea of others. Then the king's young men have this brilliant idea. And they're like, I know how we can get out of this. I know how we can be okay. Let's get them more girls. Let's get them more young women. And and it's it's despicable. It's the the culture of the time and the self indulgent, lustful culture of the time that we don't don't in any way approve of. But this is what actually happened, and so the Bible records it. And so these young men in, in verse two says the king's young men who attended him said, "Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king." And you see right there the three qualifications of what he was looking for. They had to be extraordinarily beautiful. The most beautiful in, in the, the kingdom. They had to be young. And they had to be virgins or not married. And so this was the group that, that these young men are like, let's do this. And, and they're just not thinking. They're, they're not thinking other than with their flesh and with their lust. And they're, they're creating sort of a beauty contest for the king. Now, this wasn't a good experience beauty contest like maybe we see on TV, although I have my doubts even here. But this was a beauty contest where the ladies had no will of their own in this. They were forced into this. And their lives were not going to be great after this. They were uprooted from their communities. They were confined to the king's harem for the rest of their life and moved into what was probably perpetual widowhood. Because the king would maybe sleep with them one night and then cast them off and they're stuck there the rest of their lives without being able to have a husband, without being able to have kids, without being able to contribute to society. That's what these young ladies were looking at. And the young man said, let's do this. It's going to make the king happy. We've got this. And they go on and say, let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa the citadel under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who's in charge of the women. And then we get to see some of the culture there of wedding. Let their cosmetics be given them. Let the young women, woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king and he did so. This was an extraordinarily odd way to choose a queen. They are choosing a queen. The king is listening to these these young fools again. He's listening to them who aren't thinking with their head, but with their desires and their lusts. And and he likes it because he's a self-indulgent king. He's like, yeah, I get to see the beautiful women of the, of the, the, the kingdom. But he's not thinking that this will be the most powerful woman in the, in the kingdom. And maybe there should be other qualifications. Maybe that there should be other reasons you choose. In fact, the norm was to choose your queen from among the seven leading families in Persia. And so there was a standard here of who you could get a queen from and who you could look at. All that was thrown away for the king's lust, for his self-indulgence. 
Haggai is going to pretty them up. The word there literally is to rub and to scrape. Not quite sure what that has to do with prettying up, but um, it's part of just scrubbing off the dirt and making them beautiful for the king. And then there would be this parade of women for this self-indulgent king. I think we're meant to come away from these four verses with a little bit of disgust. A little bit of disgust. But I think we're also meant to see this is not outside of God's control. King Ahasuerus isn't somehow messing up God's plan, but instead God is going to use this as the opening to bring Esther in, who wouldn't be one of those seven leading families, and who wouldn't become queen unless he did this despicable act. And so God uses the self-serving, the self-intelligent decision of the king who's not treating women like, like co-image bearers, but treating them as, as objects. The plan is evil, but God uses it. Did he cause it? No. And we, we have to understand that. He didn't cause it, but he knew the mind of man. He knew the heart of man and orchestrated events and such and then used this decision that was purely on the king and his, his men. And I, I think about that. I think about Proverbs 21.1. And there's comfort to this. There's comfort that, that God can use kings. God can use the most powerful people we know on the planet, and they're just water in his hands. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. It's nothing. He, he can direct it and, 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 and control it. He turns it wherever he will. And when we think of our lives, do you think God is able to, to use the evil you experience in this world? Do you think God is able to use the results of this Genesis 3 fallen world that we suffer through, that we get angry at, that we get frustrated at? Do you think He is able to use that? And that's the question this morning. Is He powerful enough to use that? And the answer is yes. And not only can He use it, but He already is using it. And we know that from Scripture. And we can rest in that. You know, we, we talked last two weeks ago about politics. And we're about to enter... I would argue what's going to be one of the most vile round of politics in, in, that any of us have ever seen. You know what? The king's heart is in God's hand. It doesn't matter who gets elected. No, I'm not saying we shouldn't vote. I think we should be good citizens and we should participate in the process. We should make our voice heard. That's not where I'm going with it. What I'm saying is we don't despair the, the day after the election, no matter who gets elected. Right? Because God already knows, he's already using that for his plan, for things that may be years down the road, we don't despair. We don't despair. And that's, all of this is where the title this morning comes, is don't despair, God uses even the worst circumstances. Don't despair, God uses even the worst circumstances. And so scene number one, or the the first the first section of scene number one here is the king making this vile decision, but God's going to use it. And then we get to 5 through 11 in the second part of the scene, and this is where our protagonists are, are introduced in the story, and the heroes of the story, Mordecai and Esther, are introduced. And in the second, if we had to summarize the second paragraph, God uses Esther's attitude and demeanor through awful circumstances to advance his plan. God uses Esther's attitude and demeanor through awful circumstances to advance his plan. And, and, and so we start in verse 5. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai. 
And this is the first time he's mentioned, and the heroes enter, one of the heroes is introduced, cheering and all that. The son of Jair, son of Shemai, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. And, and just to, to briefly go through some of this, um, we, we do know of a, a Kish and a Shemai in the Bible, and they were in the line of Saul. In fact, um, Kish was the, the father of Saul. And they're Benjamites. Now, this may not be the same one. It probably isn't. But in family lines, you often have the same names re, um, appear. Right? We do the same thing. Any of your kids named after a relative? Or at least a middle name or something? They, they did the same thing. And so that's probably what's happening here. So, so Kish is probably Mordecai's great-grandfather. But um, we, we see here the setup of uh, that this is the line of Saul. Now, keep in mind, Haman, we're going to find out, was of the line of Agag. And back in the day, Saul was killed because he didn't kill Agag. And so this is going back to to some conflict that goes way back to King Saul. This is an old conflict and probably reflects some of the the anti-Semitism that's in this this book um, from Persia and some of the things going on. But God is going to use this. And so we see Mordecai here come on the scene. And 6, verse 6, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. And so right from the start, we see that this is a line that was carried away. Now, now verse 6 there, it's not saying that Mordecai was part of the captivity. He was carried away in the captivity. He'd be really, really old if he did. But probably one of his, his grandfather and great-grandfather were some of the ones that Neb brought, back, brought, brought from Israel to Babylon. Another word that I, I want to mention that we're going to see throughout this um, chapter that helps us understand the point is you see words like carried away. You see it three times in verse 6. We're going to see later taken used a lot. And these are all from the same root word that means to be seized or taken against your will or with you having nothing to do with it. The, the, the um, tense that they're actually in is a passive tense, which means others are doing something to you. And that is one of the themes we're going to see from Esther. Every step in this chapter, others are doing stuff to her that don't make sense. And, and she is in the middle of this terrible, horrible, no good, very bad life because everything is beyond her control and these terrible things are happening. And it starts in these verses with this theme that these are are just difficult circumstances. So then we come to verse 7, and Esther is introduced. Mordecai, he, was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. And so we see Mordecai now has adopted Esther and is, is, is a father to her. They're cousins, but he's probably a little older because she's a, a young, beautiful woman here. And, and so he is raising her. Think for a moment of what Esther has already gone through at this point, what we know. She's been born into captivity. She's never seen her homeland. She's a foreigner in a place that really seems to despise Jews. At a young age, her father and mother die, and she's orphaned. And Mordecai, praise God, takes her in and cares for her. Her life has not been a bed of roses yet. And we have to understand these things are happening to her. And and so we would expect, as we're listening to the story, that we would expect a bitter young lady. We would expect someone that is just mad at the world, mad at God, because she has gotten the raw end of life. 
we're going to see something different. And so Mordecai comes, adopts her, acts as her father. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And that's going, to, that's going to be key. God in his sovereignty made her that way so the king would notice her and so his plan would happen. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. And then it goes on and we, we get into, okay, what's happening? So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken to the king's palace and put in the custody of Haggai who had charge of the woman. So she's taken, she's seized against her will, and she's brought to the palace, looking forward to a life of loneliness, a life of being a a toy for the king. This was not a happy day. This was not a fairy tale, but a really difficult life. And we have to understand that. And so we get to verse 9, and this is where we, we, we start to see the shift, and she's part of this harem. Some people say it's anywhere from 400 to 1,400 young women are part of this harem. And, and even the fact that she was chosen is part of God's fingerprint on this. But look at number 9, and we're going to see this at least three times in the chapter. And so this is one of the themes. Number 9, and the young woman, speaking of Esther, pleased him, Haggai, the, the, the head of the women, The young woman pleased him and won his favor. I I think at that point we have to say, well, well, how did she do this? What kind of attitude would win someone's favor? Someone that's complaining all the time? Because we love being around that. Or or someone that's bitter? Or or someone that is making the best of a situation and somebody that that is still doing what's right and still has a pleasant demeanor and a winsome approach to life? One author said, the Bible implies that she was elegant and graceful, charming and refined, personable and possessed those inner qualities that radiated outward and made all who met her glad for the encounter. Understand this. Her physical appearance isn't what's being talked about here. That's not what won her favor. What won her favor was the inner qualities of godliness that she still chose to pursue even in difficult times. That's amazing. And God was using her faithfulness. Remember, we talked about God's sovereignty and human responsibility, and we see both on display here. And so we see that Esther pleased him, won his favor. And so he quickly provided her with the cosmetics, and the idea is the best cosmetics, and her portion of food. He gave her seven young women um, to, to be attendants. And so she sort of moved to the head of the line, and she got some of these things. And he advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. And so we see God taking her attitude and taking her approach to some difficult situations and blessing that and using that. If she comes in bitter and angry and shuts down because of the events in her life, what happens here? She's not moved to the front of the line. She's not given the best. She's not winning favor and ultimately probably not queen. But through her obedience to God, God is using her. Now, now as, we, as we look at this, we should be thinking of some other biblical stories because we've seen this before. We've seen this before twice. We'll see it again once more just in the Old Testament. So much of this story has similar wording to Joseph. Joseph was sold into captivity against his will. Esther was taken to the capital. 
against her wishes, with, with her having nothing to do with it. Do you remember what happened to Joseph at every step of the way? He earned favor by his integrity, by his actions. He earned favor in Potter, Potiphar's household. Didn't go well. He earned favor in the prison. He was stuck there for a while and eventually earned favor to be second in command in the kingdom and save God's people from extinction. Esther was taken. First of all, her parents were taken against her will. Even Mordecai adopting her, the wording there is that that happened not against her will, but without her doing anything about it. Just all these events are affecting her and happening to her, and she has no power to do anything except have the right attitude and the right response. Isn't that true of us? We go through some difficult things, and and what we can control is our attitude and our response. Daniel, same thing. A man that's taken, and a man that, through his attitude, earns favor and affects a king. Coming up, we're going to see Nehemiah does the same thing, and he earns favor, even though he's in captivity, and becomes cupbearer to the king. It's worth asking, what kinds of attitudes do we have in difficult times? Are they attitudes that that win favor, that are winsome, that show that we trust God? Or are they attitudes that say we're a little angry at God? Moving through a couple more verses here. Verse 10, Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her to not make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. And we see here Esther taking advice, taking godly counsel and following it, not too proud to listen to Mordecai still. This is a lot in here is just a testimony even to how Mordecai raised her and loved her and cared for her and, and her response to that. And then in verse 11, we see Mordecai's care as he checks up on her. And, and I, there's just such huge lessons that we're going to see throughout this chapter. But we can complain about our circumstances. We can wish they were different. We can have an if-only syndrome, I call it, where if only this would happen, life would be great. If only this would happen, life would be great. And none of that fits a Genesis 3 world. None of that is going to happen this side of eternity. This side of eternity, we're called to trust God, to have a godly attitude, determined to honor God no matter what, not to mope, but to count it all joy. Because God's gracious sovereignty has allowed what we go through and is using it. I think of Corey Tin Boom, um, who, who was caught up, uh, taken into prison by the Nazi regime, into to detention camps. She and her sister was, were there, and her sister ended up dying there. But she tells a story of one of the, the houses that she was put into. The fleas were so bad that there were just painful bites on all the women. It was miserable. But they decided to obey 1 Thessalonians 5.8 and give thanks to God in all things. And they praise God for painful fleas. I'm not sure if I'm there. What they discovered is that it kept the guards away. Because the guards didn't want the fleas. So they could pray without worry. They had a hidden Bible they could study without worry. And God used those stinking fleas for his purposes to, to bless them. Point number two, God uses Esther's attitude and demeanor through awful circumstances to advance his plan. We can learn from that. The next section, 12 through 18, God was not thwarted by a despicable selection process. Evil doesn't win. Evil's not more powerful than God, but he uses it to make Esther queen. 
And so here we get the heart of the story, what happens. And, and in verse 12, we see, Now when the turn came for each woman to go into the king, to go into King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulation for women, since this was the regular period of beautifying, six months with myrrh, six months with spices and ointment. And so here we're de- it's describing, before we get to Esther, the process. And the process is, they got 12 months in a spa. No, no, don't go to fairy tale again. The whole point was, do anything you can to, to beautify yourself so you could be the king's plaything. So you can somehow win favor of the king. Imagine the fear that actually would go along with that. Um, imagine the frustration. Your life is over. And, and so they would, they would use myrrh, which enhances the skin's appearance. They would use a lot of perfer- perfumes to make you smell better. Um, so one of the authors said, you really didn't want to go into the king with body odor. Yeah. Persia was known for beauty treatments. This was, this was a thing, and there's things written. Even today, that area is known for these beauty treatments before a wedding because that reflects the king's values, and they were not good values. This section is incredibly hard to read for me, to think of this actually happening and think of this happening to, to young women in the kingdom and to Esther. But it goes on to say, um, after this 12 months, and when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. So when her night came, she could take whatever she wanted to impress the king. And, and that might have been of a, of a sexual, sensual vein. It could have been also just entertainment, like uh, an instrument or backup singers or something like that. Some way to, to, if she sang, and some way to impress the king. And, and some way to make a name for yourself, because we know that if the king didn't remember you, your life was stuck alone for the rest of your life in the harem. And so they, they would bring these. Some think that this was actually sort of a test of their judgment. What would they bring? A test of their character. I don't know. Verse 14. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem. So they had a second area that was, was separate from the ones that hadn't been to the king for all the ones that had been in the king. And this is, these were concubines. In fact, all of these and both, as soon as they were brought to the harem, they were wives of the king. They were concubines of the king. And so we have to be careful not to come. I've seen authors come down on Esther and some of the others of how could they do this? How how could they go into the king when they're not even married? Well, the first answer is they were married against their will. And and we have to understand all this is against their will in a situation where where their lives are on the line and, and they have no choice in this. And so verse 14, in the evening she would go in, in the morning she would return to the second harem, in the custody of Shaashkaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and summoned her by name. All of this was for the king's lust and pleasure. And if you didn't make a name for yourself where he didn't call you back in, you were stuck. The emotional pain of these women of being used and then being neglected should just turn our stomachs turn our stomachs. And so then we come to the next section with Esther. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. 
came time, she doesn't grab a lot of stuff. She doesn't want to keep a lot of stuff. She, she doesn't have to be showy. In fact, she goes to the person that probably knows what the king likes the best, says, what do you recommend? She seeks advice. There's wisdom here. There, there's just wonderful wisdom here. What do you suggest? I'm only going to take what you think I should take. And again, we see a familiar phrase at the end of that. Now, Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And this is a testimony to her character in the middle of incredibly difficult situation. She had won favor in the eyes of all who saw her. When Esther was taken to the king into his royal palace in the 10th month, and he gives some history there, that we know, that's how we know it's four years after Queen Vashti was deposed. The king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. He didn't even finish the contest. He's like, she's the one. She's queen. And that's an amazing thing. And, and I've seen movies and stories of, oh, the king loved her. No, no, this isn't the normal word for love. This just means he preferred her over the others. Okay, this was not a love story fairy tale. This was Esther in difficult circumstances beyond her control, choosing to honor God and praise God. Amen? And we have to understand that that is what God is looking for, and that is what he uses. But she so impressed the king with her demeanor and with her character. And again, she found favor with the king. And God is sovereignly bringing this moment to bear out of difficult situations so that way she's in the right place at the right time to save his people from extinction. Keep in mind, that's not going to happen for five more years. Okay? So so the whole thing with, with Haman and the Jews, that's not tomorrow. That's five years later. But God is orchestrating the the events well in advance because he knows what has to happen at the right time to accomplish his purposes and he will not be denied. And we can rest in that. We can rest in that. And so she's now queen. And the king, as we would expect from the self-indulgent king, then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. Let's party! We have a queen, and I need to see you to see how beautiful she is. He granted remission of taxes, people like that, to the provinces, gave gifts with royal generosity. He wanted everyone to appreciate the queen. And that's the kind of impression that she left on him because of her faithfulness to God, I believe, because of her demeanor and attitude through difficult situations. He's thrilled. How did she get through this? She didn't despair. She kept a godly attitude through it. She kept her character, a winsome spirit, and she sought good counsel and followed it. So then we get to scene three. Mordecai discovers a plot on the king's life. And this point number four there is this seems unrelated. It's out of the blue, but it's going to fit five years from now. And that's the beauty of what God's doing is he knows what's happening and he's orchestrating the pieces And so we see that now after this, the virgins are gathered together a second time. Lots of debate about that. I think probably they were all brought into concubine status. Mordecai is sitting at the king's gate. And the the gate is where business happened and where decisions were made. And probably this represents Mordecai with some sort of official role, possibly through Esther, so that way he can be close and, and keep tabs on things. 
Verse 20, we know that they still hadn't um, announced that Esther was a Jew. So that's, he says, still keep that hush-hush because probably of the anti-Semitism that's happening and the hatred towards the Jews. Um, and Esther obeyed, it said. He, she followed good advice. And in verse 21, in those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, they were angry and they said, we're going to kill the king. And they had a plot to kill the king. And just to sort of summarize this, Mordecai overhears this and he does the right thing. Whether he liked the king or not, he does the right thing. He goes to Esther and says, this is what I heard. She goes to the king and she says, this is what I've heard. King checks it out, finds out it's true and hangs them. They were both hanged on the gallows. Probably not gallows like we think of, probably a a long wooden spike that they were impaled on. Just to give you an image for the morning. And the last sentence, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Doesn't mean anything in the story right now, right? Okay, they kept a history of it. It'll mean everything in chapter 6. Because the king's going to uncover this. Haman wasn't thanked. We, we know that from later. He, not Haman, Mordecai, sorry. <laughs> Haman gets introduced next week. Um, Mordecai wasn't even thanked. He, he, he sort of got nothing for doing the right thing. But he did the right thing, and God was going to use that. And so God uses a seemingly unrelated event of Mordecai's upright actions to set up his future credibility. What can we learn? Just just to end in, in a couple minutes here. Three things. God knows our needs and works for our good long before we are aware of what is going on. Catch that this morning. If you take away anything this morning, God knows our needs. He is working for our good long before we know anything is going on, even through difficult circumstances. Like I said, this all happened five years before the threat. But our loving God knew the threat. He knew what was going to happen, and he already is orchestrating the salvation of his people before they even know there's a problem. Amen? That's the God we serve. That's the God that still helps us. I, I was reminded of that this week as I, I go into our bathroom and look on the mirror. And I don't remember the beginning of James. We talked about trials and we did little post-it notes that said God is working in such and such. And this is before we knew the, the medical stuff with Sue's and before we knew we'd be fighting cancer. And she just wrote on that post-it note, God is working through our physical problems. And it's still there. And every morning that gives strength and it's a reminder that God is working. He orchestrated that before we even knew the diagnosis to encourage. I mean, this is just a little way that your God loves you. Our God loves us and he is caring for us. And we should see that in Esther. He knows our needs and works for our good and his plan even before we know it. And that's the big picture. What do we need to know about God? Number two is sort of what do we need to know about God's work in our lives? We often do not know and may never know how the events in our lives will be used by God in the future. We may not know what circumstances mean. Job didn't know some of his. We may not know how they fit into his vastly bigger plan. But rest assured, he is working his plan and we can trust him. There is no question. God is working his plan and we can trust him even if I don't see the results. I don't have to see what God is doing because I'm not God. Praise God. If you want to be God, let's talk because that's a, that's a tough job. 
see all the future, see everything that's going to happen, orchestrate everything. No, thanks. But God does, and we can rest in that. And finally, what we've already said, our difficult circumstances don't define us or drive us to despair, but they become opportunities to act with unexplainable peace and joy that the world will take notice of. Village, when those difficult days come, if you have a winsome trust in God, if you have a joy and a confidence in God, your Savior, it'll blow the world's mind. They won't understand. They're going to ask, how can you be, be smiling? How can you be joyful in such and such? And those are opportunities to proclaim who the King of Kings is and what Jesus has done in our lives. Don't miss those. Esther chose to have an upright character in the middle of a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad life. And God used her for a plan much bigger than anything she could ever dream of. End with a quote from Spurgeon. There is no attribute of God more comforting to his children than the doctrine of divine sovereignty. Let me read that again. There is no attribute of God more comforting to his children than the doctrine of divine sovereignty. God's got this. As you leave today, as you face your week, God's got this. And he is using it, even the most difficult circumstances in our world. Let's pray. Lord God, we trust you. We believe you are God. And Lord, like Esther, may we respond in a way that doesn't despair, but trusts you and makes the best through godly character. Lord, bigger than that, thank you for being a sovereign God who we can trust with every circumstance. Where Satan can throw just the evil of this world in our path, where we can experience this fallen, cruddy world, and you say that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to your purpose. Lord, may we leave today with renewed confidence in that. Strengthen our faith, grow our faith, that we can trust you. You are a great and sovereign God, Lord. We love you and follow you. In your name, amen.